0: find your Bibles there, and we will um, turn to Mark chapter number 12 this morning. Mark chapter number 12. <clears throat> we'll read verses 13 through 17, and uh, trust you've had a good week in the Lord, and that uh, God has used you this week and been an encouragement to you. You've been able to be an encouragement to someone, and uh, my wife and I were very encouraged this week. We got to travel uh, together just for a couple of days and went to a... Um, A pastor's conference, and uh, sat and listened to a bunch of different ideas, some good singing and some preaching, and so that was a good time away for us, and then back uh, on Wednesday evening and then here with you this morning, and uh, looking forward to continuing through our series here. We've been going through this series on the journey to the cross, and Jesus is on this track. He's in the last several days of his earthly ministry before he gets to the cross, and that's where we pick him up here And it's an interesting time because they are all challenging him. They're questioning him on who he is and why he's doing what he's doing. And it's as if they're trying to find a flaw in him. And I'm happy to say this morning that no matter how you turn and look at the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how you examine him, he is altogether lovely. And they're not going to find anything wrong with him. Uh, But it is an interesting journey to see them unpack this. And so that's where we're going to begin this morning If you found your place there, let's stand in honor of the Word of God, and we'll read verses 13 through 17, then we'll pray and you can be seated there. And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know thou art true and carest for no man. For thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. And they brought it, and he said unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They said unto him, Caesar's. Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and God's the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the truth of the word of God. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you this morning would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, a heart to understand. And Lord, more importantly, that or most importantly, that you give us hands and feet that would obey and what I pray, Father, this morning that you would do a work in uh, our hearts this morning and then do a work through us. And we'll praise you for your mercy and your grace that are evident. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. You can be seated there if you would. We find the Lord, again, if we could put it in modern vernacular, kind of on the hot seat or on a, uh, a point of uh, contention where if they can trap him in this, they can get one side pitted against him or the other, no matter how he answers it. And they're constantly trying to do this. They're trying to put him in a, in a bad light. Um, I, I love the opportunity that we find even in studying history of seeing people being able to deal with tense circumstances and kind of turn those circumstances around and, and you know, make things kind of turn in the moment and it work out better for them. And I'm reminded of the um, presidential, or actually the vice presidential debates in uh, 1988. And uh, watching this on video many times, I've watched it. And in studying history, I was encouraged to to read these or watch these debates. But in 1988, the vice presidential candidate was Dan Quayle and Benson. And they were debating one another. And in that debate, uh, Dan Quayle referred to Jack Kennedy on several occasions. And he said, Jack, he said, you know, hey, I'm the same age as Jack Kennedy was when he did this, and I'm 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 older than Jack Kennedy and such and such, because they were questioning that Quayle was too young to do what he was doing. And he said, I'm the same age as Kennedy. He kept comparing himself to Kennedy. Benson spoke up and looked across at him and he says, um, I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine, and you, sir, are no Jack Kennedy. Man. I mean, just like Pow! You know he hit him with a ton of bricks, and you you could just when you're watching the video, even you can feel the tension in the air of just that was an insult, man, and it was well targeted. You know, and he set himself up for it, and of course the look on Quell's face didn't help him at all because you know he looked mad and he looked like he was offended. Well, we fast forward a few years later, Reagan. President Ronald Reagan, now after his second term, is speaking at the RNC, and he's there speaking uh, for Bush, and he's talking about Clinton. And so now Clinton's running against Bush, and they're like, hey, uh, they say that this Clinton guy is the next Thomas Jefferson. He's just like Thomas Jefferson. Reagan's speaking now. And he said, and if you remember this part of the history, is they always gave Reagan a hard time about being too old. He's too old to do the work. He's too old, too old, too old. And, uh, you know, he's older than dirt and all this. And Reagan is standing up there in front of everybody. And they say, well, they say this Clinton guy is the next Thomas Jefferson. And he stops and he goes, ladies and gentlemen, I knew Thomas Jefferson. (laughs) Thomas Jefferson was a friend of mine. Mr. Clinton, you're no Thomas Jefferson. (laughs) You know, and the whole place just dies, you know. And he just had the ability to turn that thing in a very quick moment. One of my other favorite ones is in the, uh, the presidential debate in 84, he's, he's debating and the moderator asked him, he said, you know, hey, when, uh, when uh, 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 JFK uh, was in the Cuban crisis, he had to stay up hours on end and, you know, he had to have the stamina to be able to handle that without sleep and he said, at your age, you're going to go in as one of the oldest presidents to hold the office. He said, do you think you'll be able to do that? And, uh, and Reagan says, you know, he said, I, I, I tell you this. He said, I refuse. I will not let age become a factor in this campaign. He said, I will not, for the purpose of political gain, exploit my opponent's youth and inexperience. You know? He <laughs> just had a way of grabbing that moment and turning it. And everybody in the room laughed. As a matter of fact, you, I, just go home and watch it, all right? That's your homework today, political science homework. Uh, go home and watch that little clip because even Mondo starts laughing. He's just laughing. And the whole place erupts. And, uh, you know, in, when we look at Jesus handling these moments here, uh, we could look at it and say, well, that was a nice political move. But I think if we reduce it to just that, we're missing the point. Now, no question, there is an artful handling of the situation that is going on in our text. But it's more than that. He has something else for us to say. Now, here he is, we're addressing the issue of taxation. And how many of you rather there weren't any taxes? Anybody in favor of that? Uh, How many are happy to have streets? All right, how many of you are thankful for police and fire departments? Okay, and, you know, the reality is we can all be like, man, I, I wish I didn't have to pay taxes. And I, I remember the first time I got a paycheck when I was a young boy and I, I got in the job and uh, the uh, the check came in. I was supposed to make $100 that week. And I only got $78 and some change. And I'm like, where'd the rest of my money go? Dad, they shorted me. And he goes, no, 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 you have to pay the government and uh, they took it out of my check, and I couldn't believe it. Uh, but the fact is, we're thankful for all the benefits that our taxes give us, and uh, and so that, that argument is not just a yes or no thing, uh, and so it's an interesting thing Jesus is addressed with this very touchy subject on taxation. And so let's look, if we could, at these couple of things here and give us a little context of what they're dealing with as we introduce this thought. First off, the, the province that Jesus would have been at the time was um, not a Jewish-ruled province, but a Roman-ruled province. Uh, the area had been conquered by the Romans. The Romans were in charge, but they had allowed Jewish kings, and if I could oversimplify it a little bit, they were kind of puppet kings. They were puppet kings that had rule because Rome allowed them to rule, but if Rome had taken their hand off of them, Rome could have removed them in a moment. It's interesting that when Herod uh, is promising Herodias' daughter and he says, hey, I'll give you up to half my kingdom, he couldn't even keep that promise. Uh, He had no authority to give half his kingdom away. Uh, And yet, these men had uh, a puppet rule, and they still had some authority, and obviously because of that authority and because they were playing nice with the Roman government, they had wealth and influence in that regard. But Herod himself was not the official king where he was sovereign over that land, but Rome sat over top of him. And you can imagine the frustration that that would cause. Here you have a Jewish king, Herod, ruling over Jewish people under Roman authority. And the people who don't want Rome are upset that these invaders are ruling us. And not only invaders, but they are Gentile invaders who worship a false king and a false god because the claim of Caesar was not just a claim of emperor, but it was also the claim of deity, that they saw themselves as being little gods themselves. And so it would have been a very repulsive thing for them to see Caesar and his, uh, what they might have called goons, running about the cities and the towns and demanding rule over them, even so much that Jesus has to admonish them that if a soldier commands you to go a mile, go with him too. And it was within Roman law that a, a Roman soldier could talk to any person under their authority that wasn't a citizen and command them to carry their stuff for them for a mile. And that was the limit. You could go one mile. Jesus says, all right, well, if they do that to you, go ahead and take it a second mile. And he goes, it'll blow their mind if you do that. And so you see the implication. Jesus was combating the issue here. This is where they're at. They're under this rule. Caesar's um, uh, garnered this power and authority over them, and he was the true ruler, though Herod was in name over them. These questions are coming at Jesus of whether or not they should give tribute. Should we pay this tax that Rome is demanding? There was three kinds of taxes that came to them, and the first tax would have been a ground tax. Um, and this ground tax would have been if you grew grain in your field, you had to give 10% of your grain to Rome or the equivalent in money. So you could take up 10% of your, your brought, what you brought in, or you'd have to give them the money that covered that 10%. If you had fruit or wine, then you had to give 20% of that away to the government. They had an income tax as well, and it was, get this, 1%. How many of you vote for a 1% income tax? We're good with that? All right. 1%. And obviously, when you put all these together, it was a much greater burden on the people. But then finally, a poll tax, and this would have been for every man of a certain age and every woman of a certain age, there was a poll tax. And this tax was used a lot how we would do a census taking, that they had to give a certain coin and it had to be given at a certain time, and that taxing was to demonstrate that you were a part of that province. And if you remember in Luke chapter number two, when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, he declared a taxing to be taken place, and they had to go back to their hometown and had to pay their tax. And this taxing was paid. It'd be a very easy way to get a census of who was there and also collect money for the government. And so they would do this uh, this poll tax. And so all of these things uh, were being taxed on the people of Israel in this province. Now, with all of that as our background, let's look at our text again and let's see if we can't unpack what they're trying to accomplish against the Lord. First off, I want you to see some strange partners. Strange partners are gathering together here. The closer we get into the crucifixion, the more we find the enemies of Jesus consolidating their power and their influence to try to get rid of him. In verse number 13, and they sent unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. So what do we see here? We see Pharisees and Herodians. Pharisees would have been that religious leaders. They would have been those that would have said that they were looking for the Messiah and the Messiah was to be the ruler of the nation of Israel and not one that would be under authority but would be the authority above all. He would never submit to Rome in their mind. He would never come under any kind of authority at all and they were looking for this Messiah. And so they were uh, semi-nationalistic in their approach in that they wanted Israel to have their own national identity and yet they didn't really want want to go so far as the zealots to take up arms against Rome and so they kind of had a divided thing that they saw Rome as right now a necessary evil but they gave their taxing begrudgingly but the Herodians on the other hand Herodians were more political and that was their whole identity some even argue that these were just Sadducees uh, that that primarily filled this sect Uh, but these Herodians came in and they were they were very lightly nationalists, are, uh, they, they dealt with Rome because they were under authority, but they wanted, they, they, I'm sorry, let me get this straight, they wanted Rome there because they, were, they followed Herod. And so they said, Rome's here, we're going to follow Herod, and it's, it's kind of buttering our bread to butter Rome's bread. And so you had the Pharisees that were pushing them away, didn't really want Rome there. Herodians were good with Rome being there because it was working out best for them. And these two people who had political opposite views were coming together now. These had gathered together to address this thing. They were supporters of Herod and his interests. And we see these that were common enemies of one another now have a common enemy of Christ and they come together. And so they devise a sinister purpose. It's very clear what they were trying to do. It says in verse number 13, what were they trying to do? To catch him in his words. They wanted to catch him. They meant, hey, if we could get this soundbite, we can put this video on Twitter, and he's done. And, and, you know, are we surprised that's still going on today? If you can get a soundbite of somebody and you put a a little clip out here, or so-and-so went to this place and we're trying to discredit, they're doing the very same thing in that day. They're trying to get Jesus in a public setting to say, yeah, pay Caesar his taxes, or don't pay Caesar his taxes. If it's lawful to pay Caesar his taxes, he's going to make one party upset. If it's not, he's going to get Rome upset. And so they're trying to put him in this rock in a hard place. It's interesting, too, that when they're trying to catch him in his word, they're not sincere in their attempts to get truth. I think the first thing that we should understand is that when somebody comes asking a question, they may not always want to know the answer. You know, I think we have to be willing and ready to give every man an answer of the hope that lies in us, but understand that just because somebody asks a question doesn't mean they want the answer to it. And here, these men were not seeking the answer. And I think for us to give a straightforward answer, there should be a desire in the in the petitioner to say, I want to know what is right and I want to do what is right. Now, how many times as a pastor, people come, well, Pastor, I know what the Bible says. But this is what I want to ask you. Generally, they don't really want to know what I think about this. Generally, they want me to agree with what they're about to say or where they stand on it. And the question is always put forward in a way that, hey, I'm not really coming with a sincere desire to know the answer and to obey the answer. And often I have set up a question like that and I'll look at someone and say, let me ask you a question. If you knew the truth of Scripture, would you obey it, yes or no? Well, yeah. Okay, now let me tell you what the scripture says. And now you're in a bind because you've already agreed to do that. And the point being here is they didn't want to have a genuine answer to the question. They were trying to catch him in his words. They were trying to push him into a corner. And so what do they do? They give him sweet flatteries. This is almost laughable to read. These are the men that are angry with him. The men who are plotting to kill him behind his back. In verse number fourteen, he said, "And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true, and carest not for, and carest for no man, for thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth." You know what are they doing? I mean, they are totally trying to set him up to try to flatter him. Oh, we we know, Rabbi. We know that you don't give regard to men. You're not even intimidated by Caesar, are you? You know, because you're, I mean, you're a tough guy. I mean, you stand on the truth. We know what kind of guy you are. These men are flattering. They're doing their best to trip him up. Now, I found one of the worst things to happen to me on a golf course is for somebody to tell me I had a good shot. Because if I had a good shot, I guarantee you the next one's going to be bad. And if you, met, if you want to mess somebody up on the golf course, just tell them how good they're doing. You know, just tell them, man, you're, you're a great golfer. Can you show me how to swing that? And you, just after they give you a lesson, they're going to shank it somewhere. You know, it's going to go bad. And here these men are flattering Jesus, trying to set him up. And by the way, here's the thing. That only works. Flattery will only trip us up if pride exists in our heart. If pride is present in our heart, then flattery has a chance to trip us up. But there was nothing defiling in the heart of our Lord. And so this flattery was falling on death's ear. What are you going to do? You're going to, you're going to puff up in pride the creator of the universe? I mean, where do you go above who he is? He's the I am. And here they're doing their best to flattery. And Proverbs 29.5 says this, A man that flattereth his neighbor spreadeth a net for his feet. Somebody said that gossip is saying behind someone's back what you would not say to their face. And flattery is saying to someone's face what you wouldn't say behind their back. And here these men would not say these things behind his back. They were not testifying of Jesus as being the true teacher from God. But they were rejecting him as the true teacher from God. And if they had believed what they're saying in these flattery words, uh, these flattering words, they would have been his disciples. They should have just joined the band of men that were following him. So we see the flattery and then we see, I'm calling a swift hook. No doubt they had spent some time plotting this question. No doubt they had sat back and thought, where's the best way to catch him? And by the way, this is not a new thing, is it? The enemies of Daniel all the way back in the Old Testament tried to do the same thing. They're looking for a way to trip up Daniel, and they said, well, you know what, the only way we can do it is in his religion, and so they get a law passed and get him stuck between a rock and a hard place. So they're doing the same thing Jesus with Jesus here. They try to put him on the fence between the people in Rome. They ask him the question, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Well, we got him now. You know, here's the thing about truth. Truth doesn't check the poles. It doesn't stop and check which way the wind's blowing. Truth stands regardless of what opinions are. Truth doesn't check and see, hmm, I wonder what people think about this. Jesus wasn't concerned with the popular opinion on it. He's going to speak truth. Let me say this, you're not going to conceive of a question that the Lord Jesus Christ cannot answer. He can answer the question, and he can answer it with truth, not just with opinion or position. How many of you understand that many positions, it's not a yes or no? I mean, just a few minutes ago, we addressed the issue of tax, didn't we? And we said, how many of you wish you didn't have to pay taxes? How many of you are thankful for the roads? Well, maybe not in Michigan. Um, But we're still thankful for all the benefits that God gives us through that process, right? Right? And so we understand it's not always a yes or no thing. And here Jesus is going to speak truth to the issue, and truth goes beyond just the soundbite of the moment. And these men want to try to push him to this moment. You see, the law of Rome was to worship Caesar as God. They felt that Caesar was a God. So to say no would bring him up on charges of treason and maybe even the head of a rebellion. And they were trying to trap him in this moment, Just recently in the history of this Judean area, uh, another man named Judas, not one of Jesus' apostles, had risen up a violent opposition to Rome. And of course, in his violent opposition, Rome had put him down very quickly, but his chant or his war cry was, no tribute to the Romans. And that tribute still lingered, and people were still using this, and you would see banners of no tribute to the Romans, and people would whisper it back and forth to one another, no tribute to the Romans. If we can get Jesus to hang himself on this one and say, don't give tribute to Caesar, then we can lot him in with the traitor who was just executed and be done with him. They were doing their best to do so, but if he were to say, yes, pay the tribute, please do that, then it would have pained the people who were loyal to Israel, those who felt like the giving to Caesar was to honor his deity but what does he do? He responds, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. Huh. Hadn't thought of that. You see, in that moment, they cannot charge him with anything. Caesar is no God and Jesus is no rebel. He's not a political rebel at this moment and they can't trap him with this. We see the Savior's knowledge They are trying to entrap him. They are trying to put him in place. They throw this question out to him. Is it lawful, verse 14, to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? But what does the Savior know? Look in verse number 15. But he, knowing their hypocrisy. Knowing their hypocrisy. How did he know their hypocrisy? How do you know a hypocrite when you see one? I mean, you've all met somebody that you're like, This guy is landed on thick. This guy is not genuine. Something's wrong about this guy. And your antennas go up and you're like, warning, something's wrong here. Was it his body language? No doubt. Their tone? Definitely a change in tone, was it not? I mean, just a few days earlier, by whose authority are you doing these things? We know you're a true teacher that doesn't care for what men say. We know, rabbi... We really have a question we want you to answer, and you're really the only one that can answer this for us. The change of tone was very clear, intuitively, no doubt, by experience dealing with these men, but make no mistake, he knew their hypocrisy divinely, because he knew what was in the heart of men. He knew what was going on in their heart, and by the way, this morning, not only did he know their hypocrisy, he knows our hypocrisy. He knows the hypocritical nature of my heart, and my heart can be so hypocritical is that I want to stand and talk about the forgiveness of God and yet withhold forgiveness from others. I want to talk about the goodness of God and yet not having a generous heart myself. There's so many things that can be hypocritical in our own nature that we're not even aware of it at times. We present ourselves to be one thing when we truly know ourselves to be someone else. Now let me say this morning, I, I think that's one of the accusations that probably come against the church the most. I don't want to go to church. There's just, it's just full of what? Hypocrites. You've heard that too, huh? Maybe you've said that at one time or another. Church is just full of hypocrites. Let me, let me say this morning, hypocrisy is not missing the mark. That's not being a hypocrite. This week, if, you know, you set a goal that you're going to be in the gym five times, that'd be a good goal, commend you for it, and you only went four. You hypocrite? No. That's not hypocritical. What is hypocritical is if you say you went five times and you only went four. If you present yourself to being the one who never misses the schedule, and yet you only went not at all. And so when we present ourselves to be something that we're not, then we're hypocritical. You see, these men were presenting themselves to be these desirers to learn and desirers to know the truth because we really want to obey it right. We really want to do it right. And he said, you have no desire to know the truth. You have no desire to obey the truth. You're being hypocritical in your heart. You're presenting yourself to be religious leaders, but really inside, you're not holy men. You're full of dead men's bones, and you know the fact that you're empty, and That's why someone who is whole bothers you so much. Because nothing bothers a hypocrite more than someone speaking the truth. And here Jesus is confronting them with the truth. And he says he knew the hypocrisy of their heart. This morning, there is no amount of posturing that is going to hide my divided heart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And friend, there is no sense in trying to play games with God. He knows you Inside and out. Every thought you've ever had. Now, this ought to make me nervous and it ought to make me rejoice. Because he knows everything about me, that ought to make me nervous. And yet he calls me while he knows everything about me. That should make me rejoice. And here, the hypocrisy of these men. Is in front of them. They were feigning themselves to be something they were not. They were trying to ensure the Lord in his words. Uh, They were trying to ensnare the Lord in his words. And thus free themselves from the jurisdiction of his authority. They they were double-minded men. They were resting the scriptures to try to prove their own position. Instead of yielding to his position. They say this morning, let us not come to the word to discredit the word. But to obey him. Let's not come to the Word to try to justify our behavior, but to surrender to His commands. See, the more we read the Word, the more we find the Word of God reads us. It exposes us for who we are. And this morning, as the church goes forward in this world, we do not go as perfect people with the answer to all of life's woes, but we go as broken people who know the answers to life's woes. And we go with brokenness and understanding that if it weren't for the grace of God, we wouldn't survive another day. And here's the thing this morning, whether you're strong or you're weak physically, whether you're strong or you're weak spiritually this morning, whether you've been in your Bible this week or you've ignored the word of God this week, ultimately, every one of us here are dependent upon the grace of God to be able to survive today. And the world needs to see a people who is dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ, not people who have it all together. It is not to say that we should be bad testimonies. It is to say that our testimony ought to point people to Jesus and not to us. The Pharisees had a testimony that pointed people to them, not to Jesus. So he said he knew their hypocrisy, and so he gives them a sobering question. And I think the question has to rest on them first before it comes to us, but it definitely is going to make it way to us. When he looks at them in verse number 15, he says to them, why tempt you me? Why do you keep tempting me? And, and the, the context here uh, of, the, of the words behind this would be, why do you keep on putting me to the test? Why do you keep on questioning? In, 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 in essence here, he's saying at what point, Are you going to stop and say, the results are in, the outcome is clear, you have all power in heaven and the earth, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, at what point are you going to stop putting me to the test? And then I bring it to us this morning and I say, at what point are we going to stop putting God to the test? Life is going to happen. Heartaches happen. These people wanted things to work out a certain way, and it wasn't going their way. It was going a different way, and they were upset with him for making it go a different way, and so they're testing him or questioning him. And here's the reality this morning. Life's not going to always go the way we want it to go, and we can't spend our time shaking our fist at God, saying, God, why aren't you doing it the way I want it done? At what point will you stop tempting him? We're tempting, putting him to the task, questioning who he is. When life happens, do we trust in a God who is in control or do we question the God who's in control? Now there's a big difference this morning between asking God a question and questioning God. I can ask him questions all day long. God, why? God, what are you doing? When will this be over? Read the psalmist. How many times the psalmist says how long? how long is this going to go on? And it's not wrong to ask him the questions if we know he's the only one with the answer, but it is wrong when we stop asking the one who has the answers the question and we start questioning the integrity of the one who has the answers. Is God really able? Can God provide a table in the wilderness? Can God deliver us? And when we begin to question God, he's saying, church, when things don't go the way you want them, Don't spend the time questioning me. Trust me in that moment. It's the difference between faith and doubt. Is that we come to the moments where things aren't going the way we want. And here's the thing, church, as we march forward into the future together, we can stand back and question the goodness of God or we can trust the goodness of God to know that God has purpose for every trial and every pain. And God is not ceasing to be God in those painful times. He is still a good good God. I trust you this morning. If you do not know the God of the Bible and you can't rest in who he is this morning, let me encourage you to put your face in the word of God bend your knee and get to know that he is a trustworthy God. And I cannot open you up and give you faith any more than I can give you all the answers, but I can tell you this book right here will produce faith in your heart if you'll put your heart and faith in it and say, God, let me just know who you are and pursue you. Jesus looks at them and he says, why do you keep on testing me? At what point will you cease putting Jesus to test on every trial that comes in your life? Why are you testing me over and over, he asked. Why are you trying to get me to stumble? It's interesting. They thought somehow or another that his teaching would cease to be truthful if they could just simply get him to go away. That with his demise, truth would go away. And I mean, they they thought somehow or another that we can just, if we can get rid of these ones that are talking, then the truth changes. Truth doesn't change regardless of how many messengers of truth You kill. And the reality is, as many today are testing the whole of Christianity and looking for a reason to ignore it or to excuse it and rid rid it from society, yet the martyrs stand as a witness, do they not, of days gone by when the world and society would kill the very messengers of the truth, but we find that truth crushed to the earth will rise again. Here's the thing, church, that we have to get our hearts around. No matter how unjust this world seems and no matter how much things don't go the way we think they should, truth is going to march forward. For 2,000 years now, the church has marched forward. And and make no mistake, we can look around the nations of the earth today and think, man, I think the church is in bad bad shape and, man, we really got some issues. And is there help needed inside the church? Yes. But let me say this to you this morning. The church is his church and it's strong today marching forward because he's the one that builds his church and preserves his church. And it doesn't matter how many people fall to the earth. Or how many people are pushed aside? The truth doesn't change because the messenger steps aside. Well, if we can just get him crucified, things will go back to the way they were. No, he said some things that you can't change. Truth does not change because the messenger stumbles. But make no mistake, we have a responsibility to be faithful to the message. Let us have a testimony Of faithfulness, not of our perfection, but of His perfection. Not of how good we are, but how good He is. We should adorn the gospel with our lives. So, in conclusion, this morning, a simple illustration is put forward. A simple but profound one. Jesus says in the very next verse here, and He's verse number 15, rather, we're still there. Why tempt you me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. Show me a penny. Jesus asked for a penny, and every commentary I read points out the fact that Jesus didn't have a penny. I think that's interesting. Uh, Here he's, somebody said, well, maybe he was too poor to have a penny. Someone said, well, maybe he was just using it for effect. Either way, we understand that he was not a man of means, but he asked for a penny, and someone brings it to him. He asked this question about the penny, and they brought it, and he said to them, Whose is this image and superscription? He said, Who, Who's on the penny here? And he turns the coin, and I, I picture in my mind him holding it up to the, the crowd and kind of rolling it over in his hands. Whose image and superscription? This coin would have read something like this with the image of Caesar on it. It would have said a coin of Tiberius Caesar, the divine Augustus, son of Augustus. On the reverse side, it would have had Pontifex Maximus, the high priest of the Roman nation. These would have been inscribed on this coin, and the image of Caesar would have been inscribed on this coin. And this picture would have been very clear as Jesus looks at it. He holds the penny up for all to see. We see a solid conclusion. He said, whose image is on this? Whose inscription is on this? And they said, Caesar's. And he says, very good. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The coin bears Caesar's image and you bear God's image. So therefore, why don't you give the coin to Caesar and give yourself to God? And the implication was heavy in the moment of saying that you don't belong to you and that coin doesn't belong to you. Give it to Caesar. Let him have what he asks for and you give yourself to God. Man, what an implication of that. Caesar had placed his image on the coin and God had placed his image on man. Now, there's more instruction that is wrapped up in this little statement here. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God's the things that are God's. Caesar saw himself as a deity. He saw himself as one that was over all gods, and he was the one in charge. And what we see here, Lord Acton says these words. He said those words that Jesus spoke gave to civil power uh, gave to civil power under the protection of conscience a sacredness it had never enjoyed, and bounds it had never acknowledged. Now let me let me put that down for you. When Jesus looked at the civil power of Rome and he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he recognized that civil government had authority. And he gave it a sacredness that it had never known, but then he said, and render to God the things that are God's. Now he put boundaries on it that it had never acknowledged. And now, civil governments could not go beyond the bounds anymore of the heart of believers. You and I understand this morning that though we obey the laws of our land, we have a law that supersedes those laws. We have a conscience to obey Almighty God above all other obediences. So what do we see in this instruction here? Jesus is teaching us that the state is ordained by God. And that with the benefits that come from a state... We have a responsibility to support that state for those benefits. And it's a wonderful opportunity. Here's the thing. Christianity ought to make the best citizens. Yeah. Making sure you're still awake. We ought to be the best citizens. It ought to be that we are following the law. And here's the thing. Jesus says here, live peaceably with all men as much as lieth in you. We're not looking to cause trouble. We're not looking to thumb our nose at authority, but we're learning to live peaceably. So the state is ordained by God with benefits and responsibilities support comes, but there are limits to the state's authority. And those limits are very clearly seen when we understand that we are to obey God rather than men. The apostles come up against it, Right? They're commanded, don't you speak anymore in this name? Don't you talk anymore about this? And he says, I'm sorry, you judge for us. Is it better that we obey God or man? Because we cannot but speak the things we have seen and heard. And they stood on the authority and stood outside the boundaries of civil government. And this morning, here's the reality. When the government gives us anything that is a command that falls within the conscience of a Christian believer, we should obey with a smile on our face. Or we should follow the civil routines and and, and channels by which to change that rule that we think is in place that is wrong. That would be a wonderful way of going about it. But here's the thing. When government would leave its bounds and start telling us what we can and can't do in light of what scripture says we should do, then we stand upon the word of God. And we let the word of God be what governs us. And here's the reality this morning. We must stand upon the word of God and we must have the heart Of standing before it. And let me just say this if we won't stand in peace, we will not stand in war. And what standing we do when the chips are down and the opposition is real, what standing we do then will be seen as very insincere standing because we didn't stand in peace. Think of Daniel. He prayed three times a day when it was legal to pray. And when the law came and says, Daniel, you can't pray to any God but our God,